Because Harriet Potter just wouldn't have sold as well, this is MuggleCast episode 225 for April the 9th, 2011. This week's episode of MuggleCast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash MuggleCast. Welcome to MuggleCast episode 225. It has not been two weeks like it normally would be. Usually we, you know, release a new episode every other week. But we had so much to get to on 224 that we wanted to do a quick turnaround with 225. And that's exactly what we're doing. Mike and Eric and I are here this week. And also, back after not being on for a long time, Ben... Oh, no. Matt Britton. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, second choice. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. I don't know. Out of the corner of my eye, you looked like Ben. It was really weird. Our first choice. Yes. Oh, well, thank you. That's really that's sweet. sweet. I don't know guys what so the motive sweet. is there, but... I was just trying to be nice. You know, people tell me I'm not nice enough on the show, so I'm just trying to be nice. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we have lots of news to get to, and also it's going to be, we're going to have the penultimate chapter-by-chapter installment for Goblet of Fire. Woo! We're going to be looking at chapters 34 and 35 before wrapping it up next episode. So we have a lot to get to. I'm Andrew Sims. I'm Eric Skull. I'm Micah Tannenbaum. And I'm Matt Britton. Micah, what is in the news? We missed your anchoring on the last episode. I had to do it. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. And uh, I did take a listen to the episode. You did a pretty good job, Andrew. I was, did I was I pass? rather impressed. Yeah, you passed. You passed. <laughs> so, Micah's uh, school of Harry Potter news anchoring. Uh, but but the reason why I wasn't here uh, last episode is because I was covering the Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows DVD and Blu-ray release in addition to the opening of Harry Potter the Exhibition in New York City, WB, I guess, decided it would be a good idea to combine both of these together, and just a lot of events that took place uh, over the course of uh, the last few days, and uh, a lot of stuff went on. Um, so the, the first event that took place on Sunday morning was they had all the fan sites get together and uh, take a preview of what was going to be on uh, the Deathly Hallows DVD and Blu-ray, and specifically the Blu-ray, there's this cool new feature called Maximum Movie Mode, and it really allows you to get insight into what's happening in a particular scene. And WB gave us two clips that were exclusive to the fan sites, uh, one of Umbridge and the other of Voldemort and Ray Fiennes getting the makeup put on to play that role. And, and it's really cool because you have either a member of the crew or in the case of Umbridge, Jason Isaacs talking about you know who the character is, what their role is in the series or or in the case of where you have the makeup being applied, you know how Ray Fiennes goes about transforming into Voldemort. So and and you get this while you're watching the movie, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's happening in real time as you're as you're watching the movie. Which is cool because like if you're wa- if you if you're watching part 1 again and maybe you don't feel like you know, you want something new to look forward to. This is perfect, and you get some canon as well. So it's really interesting to watch. 
Well, so, so my question, obviously they're, they're trying to, I, I saw these clips and they're, they're really cool, but I can't help but feel like these special features, these behind the scenes should have been on their respective DVDs because, I mean, they're showing Umbridge, uh, you know, how to create Umbridge. That happened in movie five. How to create Mad-Eye Moody. That happened in movie four. Do you know, you're watching movie seven, but they're going back to all these old making ofs. Where are the, where are the movie seven making ofs that are going to show during the film? And, 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 you know, I'm sure why, there's some of those. Why is it? Yeah. Why weren't these features utilized before? I I guess I feel like well, at least we're getting them somewhere and somehow. But even the extended editions don't have these, or these the ultimate editions don't have these really cool features that are on this Blu-ray maximum movie mode of Deathly Hallows Part One coming out what Tuesday. Not not all brilliant ideas come you know yeah during the original conception. There'll, so. there'll be another release of all seven together, and they'll probably put them all again. So it's going to be like the ultra, Ultimate Diamond Blu-ray Edition Extended. I see. Well, that's that's yeah. series. I think it's a good question, but the, the other side of it is how many were available when Blu-ray was a reality? Right. Right. Micah makes a lot of sense. Blu-ray's only been around a couple years. And you can only really do those kind of cool... Well, I don't know if this is like a Blu-ray exclusive feature. They may have been able to do it on the DVD. In fact, they probably could have. Um, if you can turn this maximum movie mode on and off while you're watching the movie, then yes, that would be exclusive Exclusive to Blu-ray. All right. So so the Apple Store Q&A, what happened over there? Yeah. So after, the, uh, after this event uh, at... Uh, their offices actually is where we got a chance to to take a look at the Blu-ray. They they bust us over to uh, the Apple Store, which was wasn't that far away, and we got a chance to participate in a Q and A with uh, a lot of members of the cast. Uh, this was of course in promotion of Deathly Hallows Part One again on Blu-ray and DVD. They showed us uh, you know a quick little uh, snippet from Deathly Hallows. You know, to kind of intro it, and then all the members of the cast that were participating in this event were there. And uh, who were some of those cast? Okay, let's let's go through this. Uh, Freddie Stroma, who plays Cormac McLagan, Natalia Tenna, who plays Tonks, David Thulis, uh, Lupin, Ivana Lynch, everybody knows who she is, uh, Warwick Davis, who's been on this show a couple of times, Helen McCrory, David Barron, uh, who's one of the producers, and Robbie Coltrane. David Heyman, too. Yeah, I'm not done yet. Uh, oh, that's a lot. <laughs> there, there, wow. There was a lot of seats there. There were a lot of seats. Uh, James and Oliver Phelps were there, Bonnie Wright, um, Michael Gambon, and as you mentioned, David Heyman. There were a couple of other cast members that showed up uh, the the next day for events at the exhibition, but those were the, the people that were there. Uh, and it was, it was just, it, it was a huge um, showing by the cast. So you said one of the highlights was this clip well, that's actually from the next day. Oh, I can't keep track of all this. this but is so yeah. much. Why? Why was this Apple Store? What, was it for the DVD? Yes, yes this, this was, was all the for the DVD. But when have they done this kind of promo for the DVD? I mean, this is this is massive. When has every one of their movies been on Blu-ray? I think well, that's part of it. Uh, well, I think the thing is they're really trying to promote the films as much as possible now that everything's about to wrap up. You know, they're giving. You know, they've one last shot for a lot of this stuff, so... Yeah. This is well, part of it. Uh, Apple does this thing, though, isn't it? 
called Meet the Producers or Meet the Directors. Yeah, Meet the Filmmakers. Meet the Filmmakers. That's what it is. Yeah. And so this was part of that series. And, you know, this is, should now be available for free to download on iTunes where you can go and, and, you know, experience this just as we did. And, you know, this was kind of an event I think that was more for the fans that showed up. Um, You know, we were able to ask questions if we wanted to, but we're kind of, you know, on the side just watching as, as the other fans that were there. How many Um, fans were there, Micah? Um, I would say there was probably seats for, you know, somewhere around 75 fans. And then there were some that were standing a little behind, uh, them, uh, in the background. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one interesting thing, Matt, I know you were just at one of these events, but, um, the captain of the NYU Quidditch team was there with members of the Quidditch team. And uh, they, they posed the question to, uh, the cast if they knew about uh, you know, Quidditch, uh, in its muggle form, I guess you would talk, you know, you would say, uh-huh. and they, and Warwick Davis joke, do you have to be drunk to play it? Um, <laughs> so they had a lot of interesting questions, uh, you know, that they threw back, uh, at, at members, uh, of, of the crowd. So, so, and then what else happened in the exhibition tour? You got to see the exhibition finally. Yeah, I did. It was it was really cool that afternoon. I I, I was all over New York City on Sunday. Uh, <laughs> you know, got a chance to uh, to go up to uh, Times Square and see the exhibition, to walk through. Was uh, it worth we, it? Yeah, you know, I I definitely think it's worth it if if you're a fan of the series. There's a lot of cool stuff to take a look at. Uh, I know that they've added stuff that wasn't there previously. Um, there's a few things from part two. The only thing I noticed was um, one of the Horcruxes, which was the cup. Um, but there's there's also been things that are, I'm sure have been added, you know, since it, it made its debut, stuff from Deathly Hallows part one. Uh, so it, it's just really a lot of authentic things. I think any Potter fan, as I said before, is going to want to go and experience it. It's right in the heart of New York City, so I know a lot of people make trips there at one point or another during the year. It's going to be there over the summer through September, so you know I really recommend that that you know fans that listen to us go out there and and you know have a good time. And obviously, perfect timing with Dan's musical being you know two blocks away, two or three blocks away. I mean, perfect two in one trip you can kind of make into the city to see both of those things. Mm-hmm. How much? How much is the exhibition in Times Square? I imagine it must be pricey. You know, actually, I didn't even look. Uh, that's a good question. I was wondering that. Wow, you make so much money. You don't even, like, money is of no concern to you. That's unbelievable, Micah. But but I didn't pay to go see the exhibition. Oh. Oh, oh. that makes more sense. <laughs> Warner Brothers was nice enough to say, go to the exhibition. How long, do you th- how long Micah, do you think that, that tour takes? Um, I, I think if you're, well, there's two ways you can go about it. You can get an audio companion. Which I which I remember is seven dollars. You can buy the audio companion and you press the buttons as you go along to get deeper insight into what you're seeing. Uh, so if you do that, that might take a little bit longer. Um, or you can just go through without the audio companion. It's probably somewhere between thirty and forty five minutes if you're going to stop and you're going to look at everything. There's a couple of interactive pieces like you can pull mandrakes uh, from uh, hey, dirt. I have and, a great uh, idea. We should do our own exhibition commentary. Like go through the exhibition, <laughs> tour it, record as we were, we're touring it. Tell people like which way to go about the exhibition. <laughs> what would they? And then we release it. What would we say? Because well, we'd give our own the- insight. Like, hey, this is from that specific scene. Do you remember that? Yeah. Oh, hey, yeah. You can't see it right now, but we can. The no, insight. you would bring this. You would bring this with you. The viewer would bring this with them, and we we would be the walking like tour. Our- <laughs> but. 
but maybe they they want to go at a different pace than us. Oh and they God. don't buy the walking tour. Oh, oh. The, uh, okay, so I, I looked up the Discovery Center, and uh, the tickets for Harry Potter the Exhibition are adults $25, seniors $22.50, children 4 to 12 nineteen fifty, and children under 4 are free. Oh, That's not well, too bad, actually. Because they won't remember it. <laughs> okay, before we continue with today's show, we'd like to remind everybody that this podcast is brought to you by Audible.com the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 75,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For listeners of this podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their great service. One audiobook to consider is A Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire, Book One. It's a very popular book on Audible, and a television adaptation is about to debut on HBO called Game of Thrones. You may have heard about it. It's getting a lot of pre-premiere hype. I'm personally really excited for it to begin. So for a free audiobook of your choice, such as A Game of Thrones, go to audiblepodcast.com slash mugglecast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash mugglecast. So in relation to the exhibition, there was also the roundtable. Yeah. Another the, press interview. Another another press uh, conference. And this this was, I think, really for the exhibition. This was inside Discovery Times Square. It was actually down uh, where everybody gets sorted. That's where our uh, grouping was. Because the way that they did it was they put the fan sites together, and then they put the rest of the media together. Uh, so we got a chance to really have, you know, sort of that in-depth personal conversation with, with a lot of uh, with with all the actors that were there and then the members of the crew and in addition to the people that uh, uh, that I mentioned already, um, uh, Mark Williams who plays Arthur Weasley was there, Clemence Posey who plays uh, Floor, and uh, Domino Gleason uh, who plays Bill. So and those so, were three other people that were there. And we have a clip from it now. This is a funny moment. Uh, Micah particularly enjoyed this. This is Michael Gambin. Uh, making a joke. What was the prompt? What was the question? Uh, well, Fun we, might, on we might actually hear it. Yeah, it was something oh. along those lines. All right, let's listen. That's funny. You would have thought they would have kept that, like, put that in the bloop. Like, that's just classic. <laughs> it's classless. <laughs> oh, it's yeah, Michael Gambit. <laughs> yeah, he's just having a good time. There, there was yeah. another funny moment, too. Uh, they, Somebody asked the question of all of them, um, you know, what, what it was like working with Dan. And um, everybody had nice things to say, but, you know, Warwick Davis uh, mentioned that he thought that he was actually taller than Dan when Dan started the series. <laughs> <laughs> Which probably actually isn't true, literally speaking, but I get the joke. That is a funny joke. But, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of great questions, a lot of funny moments, and you can listen to both of those panels, I think, on the site right now. Um, we have the All audio right. up there. So. And then last but not least, uh, the last event you attended was the red carpet for the exhibition and the, and the DVD. 
Yes. So that was a two in one thing. That yeah. That that was uh you know that that was, I think was for the rest of the media. Um, you know, in addition to us to go and be able to take some photos. Um, but you know, all in all, just a lot of stuff going on. Um, but great events and great job by Warner Brothers and uh you know, it was it was a lot of fun. Well, thanks for covering it. For, I appreciate uh, it. Yeah. I, I, I oh, you didn't mention the after party. That's funny. You didn't mention the after party with the free alcohol. Oh, what? Well, <laughs> we <laughs> we uh, we went over to the Hard Rock. It was just the fan sites and and um, <laughs> some other uh, some other uh, uh, people that uh, you know uh-huh. were were working with us the whole weekend, and uh, we got treated to a very nice dinner and. Um, some drinks uh, from them. So that's so, why you weren't on MuggleCast on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you yeah, were, that's st- why you were still there. you were still raising up the uh, the bill over there. Right. The <laughs> great, great job, Micah. That oh, real- you, you know, what? you mentioned something on the last show though uh, that that I didn't talk about yet, and that is that I did get a chance really briefly to talk to David Heyman. Oh, oh right. Yeah. Did you introduce yourself as the person who? You dueled the <laughs> no, person I did he not. dueled on MuggleCast? No, no, no. no. I did not. Um, but so how'd the conversation go? It was, you know, it was a really quick conversation. He was uh, coming out of the Apple store um, and talking with fans. Oh, but, okay. I thought you were going to be like, yeah, I, I kind of like followed him for a couple blocks. No, no, I no. Yeah, I turned the corner and <laughs> he was talking with a bunch of other fans. So I figured, you know, it's really uh, just a good opportunity to to say hello. And, and I mentioned that he did come on our 200th episode and he remembered it. He said, you know, that, um, you know, he, he was very, you know, gracious, I think, and just he said i ho- he hoped that uh i thought eric mentioned this on the last episode but you know the hope that we all enjoyed um movie 2 or part 2 um and uh yeah i know that you said that I, even if i didn't enjoy it i i probably would have said that i did enjoy it yeah i don't think you'd be honest with him i wouldn't i would you no, no you wouldn't either so i'd say great job yeah like <laughs> oh, so, turn the tables um no i listened to the last episode so i know everything that got said um What's interesting too, I think, is um, and and I couldn't believe this when I heard it was that it was uh, Natalia Tena's first time in New York. Oh wow, that's uh, exciting! So, so that was pretty cool. And one other really quick funny story, and then we can move on because you were talking about flying over here. There, there, there was a question if um, they had ever seen, you know, kind of what their reaction is when they see themselves on television, or you know, if when their movies are playing. Um, and uh it so happened that uh the guy next to David Thewlis on on the plane ride over here was watching um I think it was Deathly Hallows part 1 actually or or maybe it was Half Blood Prince something like that and uh you know Robbie Coltrane was sitting a couple seats behind and and Natalia Tana was a couple seats in front so he was joking about like, how funny it would be if like the other two just kind of walked over and and joined David and they kind of looked over the guy's shoulder as he was watching the film <laughs> it's kind of a you know surreal experience to have those people right there as you probably you're wouldn't have even noticed them <laughs> no, <I know. laughs> they, they all looked the same i thought you were going to say they were going to like act out one of yeah. the scenes or something <laughs> that, that would be been cool funny. Tool. yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Well, what else is going on in the news? Well, just quickly wanted to mention uh, a lot of deleted scenes have been uh, uploaded online from the uh, the Part 1 DVD, but we're actually going to save talking about them, I think, until the DVD actually comes out uh, because it would just make sense on our review show, as we do with every uh, DVD, to, to talk about it then. That's absolutely right. 
Good. I'm glad. Glad you agree. All right. Uh, final bit of news. And, uh, you know, as we've been talking about, a lot of press going on the last few days. Helen McCrory, when she was on the red carpet with MTV, mentioned that there were multiple endings shot uh, for the Malfoy family in Deathly Hallows Part 2. And she wasn't quite sure which one was going to end up being used. But seeing as how you and Eric have seen Part 2, maybe you can answer that question for her. I don't think, um, I have to say, there wasn't much of an ending. Like, I, I when I first read this article, I was kind of confused. Uh, I would just say don't get your hopes up about a big ending for the Malfoys, because at least in the cut that we saw, it's not much of an ending. There is, But there isn't really much of an ending for them in the book anyways. I know, but the point is that they shot four different art of things, including um, Narci- uh, uh Helen says that she shot a duel, I think. So, hard to say right now. I'm surprised that they shot four for the Malfoys. That seems like a lot. Uh, but uh, with the current cut that Eric and I saw in Chicago last week, I would say don't get your hopes up for an exciting Malfoy ending. All right. Well, that that's all the news. All right. Excelente. Well, uh, before we move on to our What If segment this week, uh, we'd like to remind everybody that we're going to be at LeakyCon 2011, LeakyCon.com is the site you can go to get all the information about the Harry Potter conference that's going to be held July 13th to the 17th in Orlando, Florida, over the release of Deathly Hallows Part 2. So if you want to see the movie at a midnight showing with some of the biggest Harry Potter fans, this is the place to be. Not only is there going to be the midnight um, showing of the film, but, you know, there's going to be um, group therapy after the film is released. (laughs) And, you know, other things to help you deal. But not just that. There's going to be a dance. Uh, everybody's going to... There's going to be a party in the theme park. There's going to be a lot going on, including podcasts with uh, Micah, Ben, Eric, and I. So visit LeakyCon.com. When you do register, um, get excited because we can't wait to see you there. But also use the code MUGGLE. And that way, we know that you're coming. And we can't wait to see you there at LeakyCon2011.com. Yeah. So, for the what if segment this week, we may have done this before, but we're not entirely sure. <laughs> so, instead of looking it up and, you know, figuring out if we did, we're just going to do it anyway. What, because it's a good question. What if the main character in the Harry Potter series was a girl? And as Eric noted, Harriet Potter. And some exo- example sub questions, you know, are would the villain also be female? Micah, would would the villain have to be a female Voldemort, Voldoretta? That's, uh, I guess, a good question. I don't think it necessarily have to be the case. Would it really be different, though, if, if Voldemort was a woman? I mean, what kind of a character change would it the, be? The question is, because if, a, if, if Harry were a girl, would the villain, the villain would be like, oh, you mean old man, you know, what kind of male villain picks on a young girl? You can't even. You almost can't even write about that. Well, think about Voldemort. He kills his fair share of women in the books. Over he's the not series. sexist when it comes to murdering people. He's not. No, but but in terms of a story, you know, the other thing that I kind of was going at with wanting to discuss this was: would the books have sold as well, or how do you sell the books? You well, know, that, that goes back to the first question that that Andrew asked, though. It was 
if the main character changed, if Harry was a was a girl. Uh, well, they, they, I don't they, think so. If Voldemort uh, were female, it's the same. Well, well the, the, my question, I guess, as a sub question, was: Would Voldemort be female because Harry was female? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think that's like a there's cause series for where it. the main character is uh, is a woman and the villain's a man. True, like the Hunger Games. Oh, mm, good point. Um, I think they would have to call the books like HP and the Sorcerer's Stone. HP and the Chamber of Secrets. What HP is it? Just like they did with J.K. Rowling. Exactly. What? So so they're hiding, they're masking her femininity. Right, just like they did J.K. Rowling. Well, I wonder if J.K. Rowling's true. like a little offended by that in hindsight. Um, I, I'm sure that she doesn't really. So would the books be as successful? No, I, I don't. No, I, 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 yeah, no, I don't. There's no. It would not even come close to being as successful as it is right now. I just, I think that because it's a male character, it's able to resonate more. I think across gender. If if it was a, if it was a female character, there, I don't think there's there's the chance of that. I mean, isn't isn't that the basis for Twilight? Right, one of the main, or I guess is the, is the main character female? Right. Yeah, but it's a it's a teen. But romance. she's also like the least rewarding female. She has the least rewarding qualities that you can possibly hope for. But I guess that series is pretty successful. Well, no, the series is different than this because this is a, a fantasy novel, and Twilight's more of a teen romance where the where the readers are predominant or predominantly women or young girls. Well, well don't you and they want to so. connect with the main character because they want to yeah. be living through that character. Well, don't you think though that if Potter was a female, that you would lose a large demographic of people that read these books? I, uh, you know what. I kind of agree with you, Micah, but I don't want to sound sexist. No, it's but it's a good question because I, you know, I think it's really relevant um, in that how would the books have to change so that they would be equally successful? Is well, a comparable example um, is the Hunger Games. I wouldn't call it a romance, and there's a large the main lead character is a female, and I don't think that affects the story at all. No. Um. Now, I don't think there's, and so with that in mind, I don't think there's much about Harry that's very, you know, anything he does that's very masculine no. in the series. I mean, whether you're a wizard or a witch, you're going to cast the spells and you're going to be, you know, you'll cast the spells you need to, to get your way. I mean, look at Bellatrix. She's an evil, she's an evil woman. Molly had the, had the guts to, you know, kill Bellatrix. And be the only one in the series to swear. <laughs> Well, I, I definitely think there are strong female characters in the series. I would just wonder if, you know, like, like say there are young males, are they going to read about a young female witch growing up, you know, over the course of seven books? No, they're probably, they may read the first few books, but eventually it's going to taper off because the interest I don't think is going to be there. Well, say it was written by the same J.K. Rowling, who is endlessly talented, who, it, you know, she's read all the same books as as she did when writing Harry as a male character. The focus would not be, for instance, more on romance than it is for Harry. Um, romance might be in the book, but say say all the books, everything about the books was the same, even. But the female, the Harry was was a girl, and maybe the trio was then one girl and two guys. Mm -hmm. How does that change? Things? Well, the story wouldn't. I I I don't think the story would be affected 
I mean, it would still be one of the best series written, but I kind of agree with Micah on the fact that I think the fact that Harry is a boy, that it caters to a broader reading uh, group. That's true. It is true. And I mean, you know, then you, then getting back to the Hunger Games, you have to wonder if the main character in the Hunger Games series was a boy, would it make a difference? I mean, I've yet to see a boy that's like, oh, I'm not reading that because it's a lead girl. But I'm sure there's people <laughs> out there. I mean, vice versa about Harry Potter. Maybe girls, some, there are some girls who haven't mm-hmm. wanted to read Harry Potter because it's a lead boy. Well, the, um. At least at a young age. Yeah. I think, I think Harry Potter, I mean, the interesting thing is, look, I was hesitant to read about a boy. You know, a boy wizard. Cause I was like, oh, magic You were wizards. hesitant to? Yeah, yeah. Cause it's like magic wizards. How silly. Like there, you know, it doesn't seem like, oh, and there's this mean guy out to get him, you know, with a weird name, you know, uh, because who told I told you the premise of the story. They should be shot. Well, it was, it <laughs> was just, guy it was just known. It was wizard. just known because the books had been getting a lot of hype. It was like seventh grade. And, you know, I picked up, sure enough, I picked up the, the, the fourth book, Gobbled of Fire. And in the first chapter, there's this guy named Wormtail. And I didn't understand it at all. So I continued not liking and, and being, being really hesitant to read Harry Potter. And this was with all the, I mean, all the cards were stacked in the, in the, in what I would consider to be the right way for the book's success. Um, because I do believe that, you know, really interestingly that, that the series would be completely different. Um, it would be, and it, because you'd be following female growing up versus a male growing up. And I, I do think that you would lose a lot of readers as a result of that. And, and I don't think the series as a whole would have been successful. It, and it's not trying to be sexist. It's just the nature of writing that kind of book because you're coming at it from a completely different perspective. So how, I guess this again, how would Voldemort change? How would Voldemort... Would you even know that he's male or female? I mean, when he was reborn, did he get all his parts back? Wow. Wow. He could be... I mean, be no. Uh, the only real indication is he who must not be named. Hmm. Mm-hmm. He, he and, or she and, who oh, must yeah, not that's be true. named. <laughs> I was just trying to lighten the combo a bit. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, I think but, with, with the case of Vol- uh, with the villain as Voldemort, I don't think it really would even matter what sex it is. It mm. is... Well, no, I'm still saying if Harry were a girl, but I'm saying, like, how would the series play out? It's almost like because there's an obsession between the two of them, like a mutual obsession. It's kind of really strange in a way, even as it is. Yeah, but then they can also play the whole they're complete opposites and they must duel because one's a male and one's a female. You know, I mean, it, it could still work. Yeah, like I said earlier, Voldemort's never held back in terms of killing women, so I don't, I don't think it would make much of a difference. Yeah. And female villains can be just as ruthless. The chosen one is not a gender-specific term. <laughs> <laughs> they are an equal opportunist. Well, J.K. Rowling has a lot of strong female characters in her books, which is why it's still, I, I feel it's still rewarding. These books are so relevant for, you know, women to read because, you know, there, there are still these strong female characters. And that helps, I think, you know, people read about this, this boy and, you know, all these other boy characters. But at the same time, you know, I was just, I couldn't help but think, what if? Well, that is how we play what if. I'm sure some people have some opinions on that. So feel free to email in, give us your feedback, and we'll read some of your responses on the next episode. So now let's get into chapter by chapter. As I said before, this is our penultimate which means second to last, in case you didn't I like know. like that word. 
Yeah. <laughs> because because uh because penultimate and paper are our priority at the moment. Yes. Chapters 34 and 35 are the ones that we're looking at this week. This doesn't help when I'm congested. <laughs> Can't breathe. Chapter 34, pri- pri- uh oh, priori incantatum. <laughs> priori incantatum. This Come is on, why like Michael Gambit says. It's my New Jersey accent. I'm blaming all future um, mis- mis- pronunciations. Are you okay yes. with your and New also, Jersey? And also my cold. Okay, so uh, the the chapter begins with Voldemort asking Harry if he knows how to duel. And Harry considers what his options are, because he's never really dueled like this before, and realizes the only spell he knows is Expelliarmus. He doesn't think it's going to be much use, but that's pretty interesting, because as we talked about on the show before, especially after the seventh book came out, this ends up being his go-to spell throughout the rest of the books. So Voldemort asks Harry if he'd like to be Crucioed again. He's, he's already Crucioed once, and then Voldemort says, do you want it again? And he doesn't answer, so Voldemort puts the Imperial Curse on him. So, you know, we're, we're getting the whole tour of the three unforgivable curses. Uh, I don't know if that's like a thing of Voldemort's to, you know, show off that he can do all three when he's battling people, but that's besides the point. Uh, Voldemort puts the curse on him. Now, the question is, it, it, did Voldemort put the curse on him to simply answer the question? Because Harry wasn't answering if he wanted to be cruciate again. Or was it to answer yes? Um, was If it was to simply answer, then Imperio did work. But if it was to answer yes, Harry actually overcame the Imp- Imperio curse. I, I don't know if this was some sort of sign that Joe was trying to give us that Harry can take on Voldemort. What did you guys think? Hmm. I... I- I think it was to, to answer. I think it was to answer because Voldemort makes a show of things in, in, in this whole scene. You know, he's, his Death Eaters are, have been long away from him and he wants to uh, kind of showcase his own best traits in, in which, what he, what he thinks to be the, the best traits. He wants to instill fear. He wants to show that he can be formal. You know, Harry, surely you've been taught to duel. That sort of thing. And so, yeah, when he crucios him, it's kind of to show that he hasn't lost his edge, but also he's not looking for a yes answer. He's looking for a answer because he feels, uh, that wizards, you know, full-blooded, pure-blooded wizards should, you know, which Harry isn't, I guess, but neither is Voldemort, should duel, like, properly. And I think that that's really important to, to Voldemort. He wants to play with Harry before he kills him. Right. Well, Voldemort's a very theatrical villain, if you really think about it. I mean, he, with everything that he does, especially with the unforgivable curses he only does them mainly because to show that he can do it with just the flick of a wand he doesn't even have to think about it and the fact that he just became resurrected and can do this for nothing he's he's basically showing to his followers that you know he hasn't lost his edge at all for being gone for so long and true yeah didn't harry resist the imperious curse during the defense against the dark arts lessons with yeah he did imposter moody so it's clearly, uh, I think it's just a sign that he's good at defense against the dark arts and he yeah. has this ability to resist, you know, even an unforgivable curse. We see, you know, later on in the next chapter that he's not the only one who can do it, but 
it takes a, a lot of character to be able to to accomplish that. In this moment, too, we do see Harry try to resist it, and he does hold it off for a little while, but then eventually he can't help but scream, No! Harry and Voldemort end up throwing Expelliarmus and Nevada Cadavera, respectively, at the same time at one another, and then it enters this crazy mode where their, their wands are connecting, their spells are connecting, and Harry begins to hear the Phoenix Song. And slowly, one by one, smoke-like figures start coming out of the wands. First is Cedric, Cedric, then Bertha, then Lily, and finally James. And, and Lily kind of teases that James is about to arrive. He's sort of like the grand finale. And the dead begin to speak to him and tell him, you know, we, we can hold you off, Harry. Um, we can hold off Voldemort, but only for just enough time for you to get back to the portkey. And Cedric says, hey, um, also, can you bring my body back? <laughs> hey, Harry. Um, One last buddy. favor. It's <laughs> not too much trouble. Can you uh, hey, bring buddy. my dead carcass with you, please? Yeah. Well, wasn't this was a big issue at one point, right? Because the order was messed up in some of the earlier publications. Yes. It yeah. was James and then yeah. Lily. So it people was. thought something was up. Yeah. Mm. That, that oh, James, yeah. Had, James had somehow outlived Lily, which is not technically how the story goes and that we were told previously so that was cool and then also i thought isn't the reason well kind of smart i mean i know he's only in his fourth year but or no seventh year he's a seventh year does cedric do you think cedric asked harry to take his body back because the death eaters would have misused it turned it into an inferi or something that that well, later cedric- later on in the book series harry would have had to face a zombie cedric uh, no. no cedric cedric said bring it back to my parents i mean his you know. father his father. But so really, any, you don't want Death Eaters misusing your body. No. Well, but and you also want your body to go back to your father. So uh you know, it was a reasonable request. Yeah. I would do it. <laughs> I'm already dead. Well <laughs> I don't have many options after this. <laughs> okay. How does uh, the port key get activated though? Yeah, that's a good question, because port keys are they a one time thing? Are they not a one time thing? I mean You've heard that they kind of have to schedule them, right? Well, they did They did for the World Cup. At the beginning of the book. Yeah, and that was to help stagger the amount of people going into the World Cup area at, at specific times. And I they thought. also don't want random people picking them up, right. too. So the fact that the, yeah. the cup is a portkey now is though, like, once a portkey, always a portkey, is what it yeah. seems to be like now. In this case, yeah. Um, so Harry-o, Harry, <laughs> Harry <laughs> Accio's the portkey... And it comes flying to him, and uh, he's already he's got Cedric's body, so they both are transported. Now, I'm wondering if this was kind of an oversight on Voldemort or the Death Eaters' part um, to not have destroyed the port key, because for it to just be sitting there, you know, obviously they knew it was still active. They had to have known that. Uh-huh. So, who screwed up? Who's getting killed for this? Well, Voldemort didn't have a body when, when Harry first arrived, so we can't blame him. Right. Well, of course, Voldemort would end up blaming it on one of the Death Eaters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or maybe Wormtail. Um, but I just thought that was kind of an oversight that 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 is the cause, the reason that the series continued is because somebody <laughs> forgot, forgot to, to well, get he, rid of the portal. Well, he also oversighted the fact that there could be Priory in Cantatum with him and his wand too. I mean, it wasn't even really a factor that he, that he would even escape, even the clutches of. Because at that point, Voldemort didn't know that there was something wrong with using his wand against Harry's. 
which was was flawed. The Phoenix song, though, during Priory Incantatum, do you think that's because of the Phoenix core in their wands? You know, people associate the Phoenix with Dumbledore, and, and either way, it looks bad for Voldemort. But um, but do you think it's because both their wands contain Phoenix Feather that there was some kind of I think so. song when they connected? I think, well, the fact that both of their wands are connected to a single songbird, I think there's that sort of connection. And and he and and doesn't it say in the book that he hears it in in his chest or like in his heart or something? Like he doesn't it, like he feels it. It's kind of like a magic, yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Like it's going through his like through his body. Yeah, because he describes the sensation similarly to holding that spell against Voldemort as well. Very interesting. And and uh, that's the chapter. So now we move on to chapter thirty-five, Veritaserum. Yes. Well, th- this is uh, this is kind of the chapter where everything is revealed uh, <laughs> as, as to what's been going on over the course of uh, the previous thirty-four chapters. So there, there's a lot in this chapter. So uh, it starts with Harry returning from the graveyard with uh, Cedric's body, and uh, there's this moment where he refuses to let go of it. You know, he's essentially locked on to Cedric, and Dumbledore pries him away and. It's quoted as saying that he showed enormous physical strength for a man his age. So, you know, I was wondering, does Hogwarts have a gym? You know, does Dumbledore go and work out? (laughs) I mean, or is he just physically strong? Dumbledore can levitate people without it making it look like he's levitating people. (laughs) And it also sort of just shows, like, the emotional strength going through Harry at that time. Well, I think, too, when Harry realizes, or if Harry realized that it was Dumbledore's hand on his shoulder, then he would feel safe enough to let go, even unconsciously right. or subconsciously. So there there are obviously a lot of people around, uh, and, and more, more are coming. So, um, you know, there's this moment where Dumbledore tells Harry just to stay put so he can go and, and speak with Cedric's parents, and... Um, you know, Dumbledore really at this point shouldn't even let Harry out of his sight. I don't, I don't know why he clearly knows that something is wrong. And, um, you know, Moody comes over and ends up pulling him up back to the castle and he takes him into his office and he immediately starts asking him questions about the graveyard. And it review, and he does reveal it was him who put Harry's name under a fourth school into the goblet. You know, that he tipped off Hagrid about the dragons. He told Cedric about listening to the egg underwater. Um, and he, he mentions that Harry has this streak of pride and independence about him. And, you know, sort of the fact that he didn't really go to anybody else for help about the task. You know, do you think, does this come up at any other time in the series where, you know, he's too proud to, to go to other people and ask for assistance? The, the, well, how about, um, writing Sirius. He never wants to write Sirius. And Ron and Hermione are like, you got to tell Sirius about this. But he's like, maybe then it's not pride, but it is sort of putting others in front of himself because he doesn't want to, you know, arouse suspicion, maybe sending letters to his escaped convict godfather. But he also doesn't want to bother them. He, he He's very, you know, he feels like he's over-exaggerating all the time. Um, but I wanted to ask about this the one question about the technique of Moody or actually Barty Crouch Jr. putting Harry's name into the goblet under a fourth school. I, you know, just thinking about it, just when Micah said it there, I was wondering, wh- what if what if he just put it under Hogwarts and obviously 
Harry and Cedric would have had to, in the Goblet's mind, duke it out. But would it have aroused, I think it would have aroused more suspicion, wouldn't it have, than, than if there were four champions? Like, what would have looked better for Harry? And why did Barty Crouch Jr. even think to do it as a fourth school? Instead of just Hogwarts, because Harry could have been up. It could have just been without Cedric. The whole equation could have been without Cedric. It could have just been um, Crumb and Floor and Harry as the Triwizard Tournament. Maybe Moody just wanted to create that extra tension between the Hogwarts houses. I mean, because as we saw, you know, everybody was kind of like, you know, very confused by it. And, it. and it did create a little bit of tension, although we didn't see it much in the books. But I would think that people were like, oh, well. I mean Hogwarts, but am I supposed to be cheering on for, or cheering or rooting for Harry or rooting for Cedric? Um, maybe, so maybe he just wanted to create a little more drama. Maybe Barty Crouch just couldn't, or Barty Crouch Jr. just couldn't um, confund the entire uh, Triwizard Cup, you know, the, or the Goblet of Fire thing because he, it was just too much. It was just too old, ancient of magic for him to confund it. So he could only just add another name to it instead of redo the entire rules oh that's th- that that came with the goblet of fire. right that's actually a good good idea um but, and then the other thing is what what fourth school like what's the fourth school that he put is it i mean was it pig farts or i guess we'll never know because he didn't name it yeah pig fart sounds good i i mean it just it just ensures that he's going to be selected i mean if you're in a school all by yourself oh you're right definitely going to be chosen could put neville longbottom in there I guess. Three well, speaking of him, I mean, he specifically refers to Neville when he's talking to Harry, and he says, he basically tells him, you're an idiot. Like, I gave this book to Neville, you know, how many months before the task even happened, and you didn't even think about going to talk to him. You don't, you know, use your peers to your advantage. And, you know, he talks about, you know, Barty Crouch Jr. talks about, you know, how he has taken advantage and manipul- uh, sorry, manipulated all these innocent people. You know, he he talks about how he called Dobby in um, to the the um, staff room because there were robes that needed tending to, and that he had this loud conversation with McGonagall about gillyweed, and you know he, all these people that that Barty Crouch Jr. has just been able to manipulate over the course of you know this entire book. You know, Hagrid, Cedric, Neville, Dobby. There's just this long list, and I guess. Is that just part of the quality of being a Death Eater? Not just, well, not a Death Eater, because Voldemort also doesn't really use his friends to his best advantage. Well, he doesn't have friends. But I feel like it's good advice that Barty Crouch is giving Harry, but it's kind of, I mean, it's coming from the horse's mouth. Harry isn't really able to pay attention to this, but I think it's very true. You know, with, with the way that Harry doesn't manipulate people. Look, not all manipulation is bad. And I don't think, or at the very least, not all manipulation is selfish. And I think Harry could really learn from at least some of this that, that Barty Crouch is saying to him. I mean, even now, this is, this is the Barty Crouch that said, you could be an R one day and inspired Harry to really find his only career path. You know, he's still teaching him here, even though it's kind of in a really awkward way because he also wants to know more information about Voldemort because he wears Voldemort pajamas to bed. Really? I didn't know that. Um, so uh, Moody goes on, or Imposter Moody goes on, uh, and, and tells him how he went about fixing the final task, about how he stunned Flora and used Imperius Curse on Crumb in the hope that he would attack Cedric Diggory. And, you know, so you've kind of gotten a look now at all three tasks and how Harry has 
had the path cleared for him. And maybe we talked about this a little bit, but is this more proof that Harry just has everything happen by dumb luck as opposed to skill? Yeah, well, yeah. again, the whole uh, port key thing, nobody thought to take it away. I mean, if, you know, if, if, if it were still there, that he would have uh, gotten into a more ser- serious, skillful duel. Well, hang with on. With Voldemort. It's just a cup, though. It's, port keys are disguised to look like nothing. And the other thing is that even, not even the Death Eaters saw Harry arrive, right? Because. Yeah, but somebody knew. Well, it was only after, only Wormtail can be blamed, because only after Voldemort had a body did he summon the other Death Eaters. So none of them even knew that the cup was how Harry got to the graveyard. I mean, if you, if, if you want to talk about luck with Harry always getting out of situations just because of luck, then you gotta assume that just, when it comes to Harry, Voldemort just has really bad luck. Because every time, after every book, he always manages to escape by some type of uh, of chance. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, now, w- throughout this whole conversation that Imposter Moody is having with with Harry, he keeps asking about what happened in the graveyard. You know, what happened to the Death Eaters? Um, he has this clear disdain for the other people who did not go to Azkaban. And he wants to know if they were punished and tortured. You know, he, he, he just has like this appetite for pain. Like he wants to know if these people that, you know, are not the Lestranges of, of, of the Death Eater community, just like he also went to Azkaban, you know, he wants to see the Lucius Malfoys of the world, you know, tortured essentially. Again, is that, is that a quality of, I mean, you have Death Eaters wanting pain inflicted upon other Death Eaters. So I guess that just shows you how demented this group of people are. That's true. But even, it reminds me of, uh, Sirius when, when, at the end of book three, when, you know, Sirius is deranged for quite some time because he wants to kill Pettigrew, his own friend. Obviously, Pettigrew betrayed his friends, but, um, Sirius too, just out of Azkaban is, is deranged. He's not quite all there. He's, he's, uh, only when Remus says, no, it's Harry's decision whether Pettigrew lives or dies, does, does Sirius is even able to be, you know, convinced. But, I mean, it going in the dormitory, going in the Gryffindor dormitory with a knife above Ron Weasley's bed, you know, hoping to find the rat and stab him is kind of, you know, just as manic, in a way. Yeah. Well, I mean, more than anything else, he wants to see the people who weren't loyal to Voldemort pay. Because he had to pay. He had to spend all this time uh, in Azkaban. So, uh, eventually, Dumbledore, Snape, and McGonagall burst in as Moody is about to pull you know, a wand out of his robe, most likely to kill Harry. And Again, you know, luck. B- yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nick of time. <laughs> uh, you know, but it, what's interesting is leading up to this, you know, there are these figures that appear in the faux glass that Moody has in his office, and it's supposed to show who your true enemies are. And, you know, as the conversation goes on, you see these figures slowly starting to take form. And what's interesting is not necessarily Dumbledore and McGonagall, but Snape appears very clearly in the faux glass as an enemy of Imposter Moody. So this was like a clue early on that Snape is, in fact, good. There's always a a question, isn't there? Like, it's always up to... 
uh, an opinion because you could also argue that, well, the faux glass is possibly faulty or it's, you know, it's never, right. you know, we know it's just like the sneaker scope going on. It's never off. as clear as everything appears uh, to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's always, she always masks it with this air of uncertainty that's really brilliant. Mm-hmm. Now, when the door bursts open, there's this look about Dumbledore that helps Harry understand why he's the only wizard that Voldemort ever feared. And I think we only see this a couple times in the series, you know, where, where Dumbledore is really pissed off. And, uh, you know, would you guys be afraid of a uh, pissed off Dumbledore? Yeah, because like you said, you don't see it much. And when you respect Dumbledore so much, and he's usually so calm... Yeah. With Fox. To see office. him to see him lose it. Do you think that Dumbledore was on the verge? Do you think Dumbledore really wondered if he'd lost his only player, his only chess piece, his only pig for slaughter? I'm sure there was a bit of concern, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh Dumbledore tells uh McGonagall to go down uh to Hagrid's hut and to take the dog that's sitting there up to his office. That plays a role later on in the book. Um, and he tells Snape to go get uh, Ferretta serum from his uh, his uh, storeroom and then to go get Winky um, out of the kitchens. Um, and then Dumbledore administers the Ferretta serum to this imposter, Moody, now Barty Crouch Jr. He is transformed back. And we learn this entire backstory. Um, you know, Eric, I think in a previous episode, you kind of touched on this, how much story exists. Um, you did, like, I think it was the pensive... Um, chapter uh, where he goes back into the trials and um, you know this is kind of lost in the movies so you just kind of run through it real quick Um, we learned that Barty Crouch Jr. exchanged places with his mother in Azkaban Um, she was dying and the Dementors can't tell the difference I guess between one dying person and another Um, and his father kept him under the imperious curse but eventually Barty Crouch Jr. grew stronger. One day, Bertha Jorkins came to the house and found out that Barty Crouch Sr. had modified... Um, I'm oh, sorry. And then Barty Crouch Sr. confronts her and realizes that he's going to have to modify her memory. So really, it's Barty Crouch Sr. that sets all of this in motion, not only by getting his son out of jail, but then by messing up Bertha Jorkins' memory so much that it's damaged. And, you know, she finds her way to Albania, where she runs into Wormtail, and Voldemort is able to break through the memory charm that that Barty Crouch Sr. has put on her. Um, and he gets all of this information out of her, that the fact that Barty Crouch Jr. is still alive, the fact that the Triwizard Tournament is going to be taking place at Hogwarts. And, um, you know, so essentially, now all Voldemort needs to do is show up on the Crouch's doorstep and take advantage of the situation. And that's exactly what he does. Um, you know, we learned that Crouch Jr. was at the Quidditch World Cup, and he was the one who conjured the Dark Mark uh, with Harry's wand. It was actually Winky who convinced Barty Crouch Sr. to let his son go to the Quidditch World Cup because, you know, he needed some fresh air or something like that. Um, but, you know, as I mentioned, they Wormtail and that weird form of Voldemort eventually show up on the Crouch's doorstep, and now it's Barty Crouch Sr. who gets put under the Imperius Curse, and he starts sending letters um, to the Ministry, basically giving instructions to Percy on what he needs to do at work. Um, but is there there is that moment where he escapes, and he makes it to Hogwarts, um, but Crouch Jr. is able to intercept him because of the Marauder's Map, and he eventually kills him, and turns him into a bone, and buries him you know, in Hagrid's uh, 
pumpkin patch. So it's a ton of backstory that you get there within, you know, just a couple of pages, maybe like five to 10 pages. Um, but you know, this has all been going on. Yeah. This is the, and it's, it's so rich. It's, yeah, it's so rich. Like, do you think that when, when Voldemort and Wormtail showed up at Barty Crouch's house, that Voldemort was in a little baby carrier on Wormtail's chest? Do you think that that's how it went down? And they knocked on the door. Did he have a death rattle in his hand? <laughs> Sorry, that that was bad. Joke. No, but there's really not much more to this chapter. I mean, there, and there there's just a lot of plot to digest. That's really what it is. But it's so good. So that's how the chapter ends. All Sorry. right. Well said. <laughs> and like I said on the next episode, so long as it's not our trailer episode, we will wrap the book up. Be done with Goblet of Fire once and for all. Which leaves only Order of the Phoenix, right? Yeah. We've worked yeah. on this before. We've talked about this. We're um, one book away from the end. It's now time to play Favorites. And this week we have Favorites Quidditch Position. Very simple. Is that suggestive? Eric, what is your favorite Quidditch position? Yes, please. <laughs> Matt, how about you? Um, I like the snitch. Favorite Quidditch position. <laughs> are, we playing mu- are we talking about Muggle Quidditch or Wizard Quidditch? Favorite Quidditch position. Uh, if you were playing, if you were playing, and you I couldn't was, be the I snitch. Was playing, oh, okay. Right. Um, I, I would pick probably Chaser. That's a good one. I'd be the Seeker. You'd be the Seeker, Micah? It's fast, and when you, when you, you know, once you catch it... Uh, a glimpse of the snitch, you must get so excited. Yeah, but you're sitting there for the, the most of the duration. Days of the even. Days. I'd, I'd say beater. Beater. Oh, yeah, of course. I forgot about beaters. I wouldn't want to be the keeper. I think any position besides the keeper because I get really nervous and uh, it doesn't work out well. But, yeah, beater. Beater, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go with Micah. Micah and I be beaters. All right. Well, um... For the rest of the show, we are going to be talking about Deathly Hallows Part 2. You may be- remember that on the last episode, Eric and I um, went into a lot of spoilers in the second half of the episode. And we're but gonna you do didn't that even again scratch the surface. But we didn't scratch the surface, right. So, if you don't want to spoil... are you sp- holding a grudge? Jeez. What, no, what's no, gone? no. You guys did a great job, Les. I'm just saying that there were things that, that, you know, that, that were uh, omitted. So if you don't want to be spoiled, you should stop listening now, because for the rest of the episode, we are going to be touching on some spoilers. Oh, God. Um, not too many, though. I mean, well, yeah, we will. We got I, some muggle <laughs> So Yeah. So um, thanks for listening if you're going to stop now. All right. Bye, guys. Um, <laughs> so, Micah, you had some specific questions. All right. So just some of the questions that I had coming off of uh, last episode were... You know, were you surprised at the number of characters that were present in the final battle and kind of who stood out to you? You know, maybe people that you weren't necessarily expecting to see that were there. Um, definitely for me. Andrew, do you want to answer it or should I? Well, I mean, just briefly for me, the only, I was just surprised to see Sprout because I don't think we'd seen her in a while. She didn't have any lines, but we do see her in a few scenes. She's very prominently seen, like very visible. Yeah. And, How about you, uh, Eric? Yeah, yeah, Sprout and Trelawney. I want to say because there's even oh, a br- yeah, there's even a brief her. there's even a brief moment with Trelawney, and I think it's like it's one of those things where Hogwarts is under attack, so surely you're going to see all this all the teachers. Um, but 
you know, it's just to have that kind of foresight to call all these actors back and into action. They all seem to have been willing enough to to do it again. So I think. So that how that's, is the Trelawney scene? Um, it's oh, it's brief. It's in the uh, great hall. I don't even know what she's doing. She's talking to somebody else. But you see her, and the camera kind of like it doesn't even focus on her, but she's there. You absolutely see her. She doesn't even have a line. She has a line, but it's she to somebody something. else. She it's, yeah, she anybody. says something, but it's not to... She doesn't hit anybody with frying pans or bottles of sherry or anything like that. She doesn't hit um, Frenrir Greyback in the head with a crystal ball? No. No, uh, that happens in the book, though, doesn't it? What other questions do you have, Micah? All right. Well, this is a question a lot of people actually sent in that I had asked um, you, know, you guys, I think, when we weren't recording, but... Peter Pettigrew, uh, he doesn't kill himself in um, the end of part one like he does in the book. You know, what, if any, does he, does this play itself out in part two at all? We get, and I'm sorry to break the news, we get no ending for Pettigrew. <laughs> He's not even. There's a brief yeah. flashback, but nothing else. Yeah. We don't see Pettigrew. He's not. He's he's extremely absent from the final battle. Um, and Heyman which, said in an interview recently that they do not tie it up. So that that is one hundred percent not happening. <laughs> that is one hundred percent dumb. Wow, Micah, you dumbfounded me in your question. I, I just I can't. It's so funny, but. Because we, we wondered, you know, and I, I argued that it was t- leading up to a much more epic part two. The fact that they, they didn't kill Pettigrew at the end of part one, that he had some a role to play. But Didn't Heyman refer to his death as juvenile in oh, that article? That's oh, a good question. Whoa. That's, Wait, that's, that's kind of critical for Heyman. Um, yeah, I think he was... Juvenile, so we decided to have him pass out, and that's it. That's pretty much. I, I mean, you know, it's disappointing. I think, in the sense that all the Marauders, you, for the most part, I think you see die in this film, or you know, you see Lupin dead at the end. You guys mentioned that, um, but the whole point was that all four of them were supposed to die, and and even the the um, the life debt that he owes Harry. I mean, I, I think you showed it in Goblet of Fire. Why not have the payoff in Deathly Hallows? Yeah. You know, you showed him getting his hand. Why not? But, okay. Anyway, uh, you know, in the review that you guys posted on the site, you mentioned that Neville and McGonagall had standout scenes. You know, what was so good about them? Jeez, this is like, this is such a question, though. You really want to be spoiled. I mean... Isn't it That's good the enough point that of spoilers? But, okay, but isn't it good enough that Neville and McGonagall had standout scenes? You really want to know what they are? Like, that's a really specific question. Yeah, it is. It may be too much, Mike. I'm but, sorry. Neville does a speech. We'll just say that Neville Neville has kind of a speech moment. In addition to actually, Neville um, fends off nearly the entire army of Death Eaters as well at one point. Yeah, um, I, I almost thought it was too much what they have Neville do. Um, and, uh, and, uh, as for McGonagall, she has a little mini speech kind of moment. Um, but you know, she's the headmistress, so. That's true. She does take an orderly role, and that's, that's what you'll see. Mm-hmm. You know, and Eric, one thing that you mentioned to me was that there's no scene between her and Harry and the Caros in the Raven's Claw um, common room. Where they spit on McGonagall, yes, that, um, that does not happen, um, 
And in fact, the Caros exist in the movie, but they have no lines. Um, and I think that that was a, a really big, it's obviously going to be a really big change, um, for, for, you know, the readers, for the listeners might be shocked right now, but I do think the, the one thing about this film is Hogwarts is shown so much that even in the beginning of the film, when Hogwarts is shown, you see students actually marching in rows of like five and four, you know, columns of four. They're marching like to and from their classes with Snape presiding. The idea that Hogwarts is now a police state, um, of sorts, kind of V for Vendetta-ish. The idea that these, these students are being oppressed are, is already conveyed by the imagery that by the by what you're seeing on screen and when uh the trio do get back to hogwarts neville fills them in over everything that's been happening plus he's got a a, i don't know a missing tooth or a, a black eye or something that helps also convey that hogwarts has not been a wonderful place what you don't need are these really disrespectful um you know death eaters who we've never seen before in the films you know maybe they could have given that role to Pettigrew, given him something to do but you know, you, you, what you don't need is these people we've never seen before causing a ruckus, and then, you know, it wouldn't have been as meaningful, I don't think, mm. on film. What other yep. questions do you have? All right, well, uh, how about Snape's death scene? I know you touched on it briefly in the last episode, but, you know, changing it from the Shrieking Shack to the boathouse, you know, you don't have to go into too much detail, but, you know, how is it different, and did it work? It, it, it worked. It was an emotional scene, obviously, uh, or... Honestly, it doesn't matter that it wasn't in the Shrieking Shack. There, there's very little difference that is made here. Um, I think people would find it, will find it just as emotional as they did in the books. Was there a tear? I uh, actually there wasn't, but <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> because, He's asking because I told him. Oh, was there a tear? No, there wasn't. Uh. Okay, so we saw this film in a really unfinished state, and because Snape, when he's dying, you know, after the snake has attacked him, Snape is dying, and uh, he he's obviously, he starts bleeding from his neck and his eyes, tears of, well, what Harry thinks is tears, but it's actually memories. His memories are starting to flow out of him, and Harry has to grab something real quick. But anyway, because it's... um silky white silvery tears instead of regular tears there actually weren't any tears coming from alan rickman when he's dying so there's an extreme close-up and remember this unfinished version of the film is complete with subtitles and little cue cards for when something cgi will be put on screen but hasn't made it yet and so snape's final death look at harry you know it's very emotional harry walks in after voldemort leaves you know kneels next to him kind of looks at harry snape says look at me you know you have your mother's eyes all that all that good stuff that's in the book and then right when he's about to die there's that last moment of 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 look and snape he, he he's dry he's not crying at all but there will be a tear the cue card at the bottom says a tear begins to form from Snape's eye. And, <laughs> and the, the entire audience laughed because it was just so funny, the perfect, the timing of it. And it kind of broke the emotion in the theater because, you know, everybody was laughing and here Snape was dying. But just reading that text made it so funny. Um, so, yeah, the, the, there was not a tear, but I we are assured, unless they're going to keep that caption there, you know, turn, turn Harry Potter eight into a comedy, um, then, yes, I believe there will be a tear in the final... Snape scene. I'm glad. Yeah. All right. Now, do we do we see creature? In no. The... Okay. 
Grop? No. Centaurs? Actually, no. wait. Grop? I think so. Yeah. I lie about Grop. I think <laughs> there are. Well, we nobody's identified as like Grop, but there are giants that we see. There are giants. A lot of giants look uglier, a lot uglier than Grop. But I think I saw over like an overpass of like Grop coming down the the hill to fight in the battle. So, but 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 no one's identified. So. No, but yeah, the no. giants are on the Death Eater side. Yeah. Yeah, and they're okay. facing. That's why it's so massive to see the students and Hogwarts battling these giants because it takes quite a few of them. Um, but at the end of it all, there are like giant, giant carcasses on like over the bridge and stuff, like sprawled out across the grounds of Hogwarts. It's really interesting. And speaking of creatures, there are no centaurs and no buckbeak and no house elves. And no house elves. Yeah, that's why don't we just rip, so what is there? Rip your heart out in five s- sentences. There, there's people who are much cheaper than creatures to create. <laughs> <laughs> there are people. All right, Slave labor. need a sugar coated Andrew. Wow. Just just tell it like it is. Uh, and then two more questions for me. Uh, do you actually see Remus and Tonks get killed? We don't see it obviously in the book, but. No. Uh, <laughs> The reason why I asked, though, is because um, Natalia Tena had mentioned at the press conference that she had died on a cold night. Um, so maybe they actually did shoot the death scene, but I guess they don't actually show it in the. Uh, That's interesting. In the movie. You do get a shot of Remus and Tonks. They, they, they. Well, you get it. You, you get two. No, one when they're alive. They're actually um, during the fortification of Hogwarts. Uh, Lupin and Tonks are up sort of on one of the towers together and they right before it all goes down hits the fan whatever they um do look at one another and they kind of sort of outstretch their hands to 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 hold hands during the fighting and then obviously it's a different scene but harry um you know when harry right after voldemort uh, gives Grants the pardon, Grants the the hour to collect your dead, meet me in the forest That's or else. That's when you see them. That's when Harry goes to the Great Hall, sees not only that, that Fred is dead, which happens off scene, off screen, but that Remus and Tonks are, are dead. And, and they're also in, the, they're like laying on a body bags or, or, you know, the, the equivalent. It's like body a, a carriers, body carriers, blankets, things, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, but their hands are kind of outstretched and kind of touching as well. So it's, it's that same sentiment where Remus and Tonks were lovers. They're dead, but Harry, you know, can't bear the idea that, that all these people have died for him. Yeah. You see, you get the point that it bothers them. Yeah. Him. him. It bothers him that <laughs> these people have died. They for doesn't bother them very much anything at all. So I can't believe we don't see Fred dying. Yeah, you see, it's quick too. You see Fred and George um, on the roof somewhere. They're like literally hanging on a roof, and uh, George says, "You ready, Fred?" And Fred says, "Yep, born ready," or something like that. And uh, that's their sort of engagement to to be in the battle. Um, but the but the death scene where they're all all the Weasleys are crowded over. Yeah, that's Fred. Sad. That is very sad, and and Ron is just. Um, Ron is making the the sounds of 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 true, what's the word? Um, heartbreak, uh, love, heart being shattered, sort of thing for for a lost family member. So that's really emotional. Any All other right. questions, Micah? Yeah, my final question was, you know, you talked about the um, the 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 bank scene, uh, you know, at the beginning of the last show. How do they know 
the cup is there, how do they know Horcrux is is in the vault? Do they ever explain that? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think it's assumed because Bellatrix was, and it, Harry says it out loud. Um, yeah, that yeah, that right. they assume because Bellatrix was freaking out about them being in her vault that there must have been something of Voldemort's in there or something special. Yeah, yeah, that's what. Yeah, and I, I, th- I think they even mentioned that. the diary that that he gave the diary to Lucius. So why wouldn't he give something to Bellatrix? That's that sort of thing. So it's almost because of her overreaction in the previous film that they're able to to guess. But once they go in, and this is sort of a difference from the book. Um, the idea that Harry is a Horcrux is, 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 you know, I would say very hinted at the whole film because he has a connection to the Horcruxes where he can hear the parcel tongue, um, and almost use, he almost has a, a, a spidey, se- uh, sorry, he almost has a spidey sense, um, you know, that allows him to, so they get in the vault and it's a huge vault, tons of stuff in there, but Harry is able to kind of concentrate and, you know, walk around a little bit. And it's the same way he finds the tiara in the room of requirement. He hears the whispers from the Horcrux yeah. and is able to locate it. So that's it's what a- we've heard in the films before. Yeah. I think that's, that's how smart. You I think that really pushes the film along. It, it does. It does. But almost surprisingly so to where the point where I was just trying to say something and I was like, oh, wait, the idea that he's a Horcrux is actually like a long, drawn out thing in the film, much like. Barty Crouch Jr. showing up at the beginning of movie four in the Riddle House. You know, it's it's very from the beginning on. You have these hints that allows for the audience, any audience, not just fans, to understand things or to be open to some ideas. So there is that. All right. Now, um, in response to episode two two four, we got a lot of emails from people who had more questions about part two, and we're going to answer those now. Robbie C. Sixteen in New Jersey wrote, "Hi, MuggleCast. Just wondering if in a, in the advanced screening of part two, if there is a scene, like in the book, where after Harry obtains the Elder Wand, he then repairs his own wand that was broken in part one. I feel that was an important part of the book that shouldn't have been missed. But I didn't hear or read anything about that occurring. Thanks, Robbie. Eric, the answer is... No, negative. Negativo. And no in about five other languages is also no, which is, I'm sure it's more than five. But, um, no, actually, Harry's wand, we should give it more of an answer than that. I'll be short. Uh, Harry's wand is not shown in this film, his original wand, as far as I can recall. Um, it's not like he doesn't still carry it around, but he doesn't pull it out, and he's not sentimental to it. Um, there is a really important moment at the very, very end of the film, uh, right before the last scene, right before the last moment, when Harry discovers that he's, of course, the current owner of the Elder Wand, and how he re- relates to that is very important, and also sort of the, the conclusion uh, to this question. Uh, Mikey, can you read the next email? Next email is from Whitney24 of Nashville, and she says, Hey guys, love the show. I was just listening to the latest podcast with your part two screening review. I know you probably can't answer this on the podcast due to it being of a spoilerish nature. Yes, we can. But hopefully you can email me with your response. I was wondering how they got around the absence of Phineas Nagellus' portrait being in the last movie as the way that Snape was able to know that Harry and Hermione were in the Forest of Dean and thus having Harry follow his dope Patronus to retrieve the Sword of Gryffindor. This movie plot hole has really been bugging me since the last film, and I would love to find out if this was addressed in part two. Thanks, guys. You're the best. Wow. In in the um the prince's tale, we see a shot of um the doe being sent 
or the Patronus, right? Yeah. And that, that's, I, I think that's how that plot point gets wrapped up. I, yeah, I don't even think it's wrapped up. It I think themes. I think this this uh, reader leave it to our wonderful listeners. I think Whitney actually did cover up a little bit of plot hole because there's no without Nigellus's por- portrait, you're not really supposed to know. There's no way for Snape to actually find the trio um, from afar. But right, but still, we know yeah. by looking at the prince's tail that that's it was Snape yeah. who did it. In the prince's right. tail, we realize that it is Snape. So you know that the silver doe is Snape's. And always, quote, end quote, has been. But um, but the actual location, how he knew that they were in the Forest of Dean, is actually not answered. So that is a plot hole. Um, right. But, I mean, it's but, but it's also a film. I mean, it's not canon or anything. Right. Well, it's its so, own sort of world. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you get you get to find out who sent it. So, and some questions I think that's the don't most important part. need answers, in a way. Yeah. Chelsea, 18 of Torrance, asks... Uh, if the epic line, after all this time, Severus, always, were said between Dumbledore and Snape, I, was that, Eric? I don't... Yeah, yeah, absolutely was. Was that in The Prince's Tale? Was that when I was in the bathroom? Uh, well, you were, you came back by then, so you should have been paying attention. Oh. But, you went uh, to the bathroom? Mm, yeah, during, <laughs> during The Prince's Tale. But he came, but the thing is, he said on last episode, uh, Matt, that he left and came back and The Prince's Tale scene was still going on. So much. Yeah, it's really long. So much unlike, uh, Snape's worst memory in, in, uh, movie five, this is not a 30 second, uh, BS, if you'll pardon my. Th- wow, you're being very generous with 30 seconds. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> I also really kicked somebody's popcorn on my way out, and I still feel terrible about that. <laughs> like, really knocked it. Like, I kicked it three feet because I wasn't even looking. So when my foot moved, it flew. That's okay. Nobody was eating in among their tears at that point. In Eric, the film. can you read the next email from Rachel? <laughs> yeah, next email comes from Rachel nineteen of Reno, Nevada, biggest little city in the world. I was recently disappointed with the latest interview from David Heyman about plot changes in part two from Cinema Blend. Before reading this, I've always held Heyman highly for the fantastic work he's done in the Potter series. However, throughout the interview, he made many errors about the series, said that Peter Pettigrew's death in the, death in the book was juvenile. Uh, I understand the desks coming to life part being juvenile, but Wormtail strangling himself, really? And it, how if there was only one movie, they would have cut Snape's flashbacks. I'm not sure if he read D.H. clearly, but Snape's flashback pretty much explains most of the series in a nutshell. If it weren't for Snape, it would have been entitled Neville Longbottom and the Deathly Hallows. Overall, I was less angered at what Heyman had to say. I was angered. I was angered at... Excuse me, who's reading this? I was angered at what Heyman had to say in most of the interview, and I was wondering if any of you felt the same way. Keep up the fantastic show. Well, once you see how long the flashback is, like Eric just noted, <laughs> you'll see why they would have had to cut it. Um, uh, yeah, Heyman and all these creators have a lot of pressure to get this stuff right. So, you know, the decisions they make, we never get the full context around, really. Um, you know, I'm sure Heyman could talk 30 minutes about why and how they could have cut the prince's tail without it ruining the film. You know, but that would have just been his opinion. So... You just have to take what they say and just roll with it, baby. <laughs> Next email from Chucky. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. 15 from New Zealand. Listening to the latest episode at the moment, and you mentioned that after Harry finds out he has to die, he says goodbye to Ron and Hermione. Can you please tell me whether he specifically says that he's going to die or that he is just going after Voldemort? Because it's been bugging me for a while in the build-up to the movie. Yeah, how does he say goodbye, too? <laughs> Do you want to answer this? 
I can't totally remember. Okay. He, he doesn't, oh, he says, he says to Hermione, I think I know what's going on and you've known it too. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you've known I was a Horcrux, basically. I think he even flat out says I'm a Horcrux, uh, because Ron needs to understand it. But he says, I, I think I've been knowing what's going on. You've known it for a while too. Hermione, like, has a tearful admission. Um, yeah, she starts to break down. But, she but it's him. very clear that they know that Harry is going out there to die. Um, which is sort of okay. what, what makes it most emotional. So yeah, he's not just going after Voldemort. He's actually going into the forest to die. Matt, can you read the next email from Katie? Yeah, sure. Second paragraph. Oh, okay. Uh, our, our next email comes from Katie 20 from Dallas, Texas. And Katie writes, one of my favorite moments in the book was when Voldemort and the Death Eaters bring out Harry's supposedly dead body to show the school. The image of the entire school thinking Harry is dead, his best friend's mourning, and then that moment where McGonagall screams in one of the most moving scenes for me in the book. Is it in the film? Yes. Yes. And but I don't think McG- – is McGonagall screaming? No, she doesn't I don't know. scream. I remember asking you this uh, the other day, too, because that's one of my favorite scenes in, in book seven is when McGonagall screams no when she sees Hagrid carrying um, Harry's supposedly dead body uh, in his arms. I think um, the, the interesting thing about this scene is that I, it's, I think it's going to be the best scene in movie eight. Um, it's, it's the victory speech. It's not only the victory speech, but the opposition from Neville. Neville's speech takes place here, too. Basically, uh, they, they've just come from the forest, Voldemort and everybody, um, leave, they, you know, they enter sort of the, the courtyard of Hogwarts. You know, uh, Hagrid is carrying Harry's lifeless body, and Voldemort actually gives a sort of victory speech about, you know, now it's all over, and you should join me. Like, now there's there's nothing else, you know, you've lost your hero. Uh, he says something to live, like, all wizards are welcome. You know, all actual pureblood wizards, whatever, are welcome. And there's one weird point here where he he asks Draco to come over, and the Malfoy... Uh, well, he uh, does Lucius... His parents oh. do. Cause, okay. cause, so he, he gives the ultimatum, join me, like, walk over to this side of the courtyard, basically. Like they do in Hook. Like with the Lost Boys, um, joining Rufio. And the thing of it is, is nobody moves at first. And then, uh, Narcissa and Lucius call for Draco to come. And Draco kind of looks, uh, how Draco always looks, kind of unsure. But then he walks across it and, and Voldemort actually hugs him. Yeah, it, that was the weird part. That was weird. Voldemort. Yeah, kind of pulls Draco in, and he it's says, kind of well awkward because like he says, "Well done, Draco," and he's, he's and so... Voldemort's pointing his wand at Draco too. Like yeah. it's kind of eerie. It's weird. I didn't like seeing, it at all. Seeing Voldemort hug, touch someone, touch someone <laughs> exactly. But I, I listen. When I saw this in the film, I said, "Okay, he's just happy because he thinks he's really won." You know that he's actually almost more human now. He's he's hugging people. But anyway, well, he's doing that as a uh, as to show like he's a he's not without compassion like you can come i will not do anything if you walk over look at this you're already defending the film matt this is awesome <laughs> well no i mean well, it makes sense like it's all, all right. just one big show j- just to get other people to come and coax yeah, yeah, yeah you're very right i think and and so then neville though neville walks forward and people are kind of like <gasps> neville's gonna join you know voldemort but then neville says i just wanted to yeah yeah, it's wonderful, and Voldemort taunts Neville beforehand. It's just amazing. Final email, Brad16 of Bay City, Michigan. Uh, he had a few points he wanted to, to have clarified. Uh, the scene where Professor Trelawney launching crystal balls at the Death Eaters. Is it in the movie? No. No. Harry meeting Neville and telling him to kill the snake. Yeah. In fact, I think Harry tells everybody to kill the snake. He's he's recruiting people to go kill the snake because he's got to go in the forest. He reiterates several times that that snake needs to die. Neville. The snake 
dies. Neville being tortured with the flaming sorting hat and pulling the sword of Gryffindor out to kill Nagini. Uh, one of those two things happens. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. And, uh, lastly, Professor McGonagall, Kingsley, and Slughorn dueling Voldemort's. Um, no, I don't oh, know if this is towards the end. But they're talking about or but Kingsley is in the film, and Kingsley and Mister Weasley go around fortifying Hogwarts together, which is awesome. And Slughorn is in this film a lot, just shown doing different things in the battle. And McGonagall, as we said, has many shining moments. So there, it's not like even though you may not see those exact configuration of characters fighting Voldemort, what you do see is those characters, so it's not like they cut those characters out, which would be really disappointing. What about Flitwick? Flitwick, He's too. Yeah. He um yeah. he he actually uh, barricades the front entrance. Um, oh, yeah. How is that? Like, when he... Because I know in the book, it's it's almost listen, like a listen weary... Listen to match. our last episode. Why? Because we talk here about it me. there. Fine. I'll just ask you later. <laughs> This has been another very full show. We hope we answered a lot of your questions about part two. If you're itching to learn more, um, I think that after this episode, we're going <laughs> to keep it down now on. We're, we're turning a lot of people away from our show because they don't want to be spoiled either. That's true. Um, a couple of things. Don't forget to visit mugglecast.com for all the information you need about the show. On the right there, you're going to find several important links, including, uh, the link to LeakyCon 2011. It's going to be May or <laughs> July 13th to the 17th in Orlando, Florida. Use referral code MUGGLE when registering. Also, you'll find a link to our iTunes page where you can subscribe and review us. Uh, we have to do this reminder every once in a while. When we do put a new episode out, bring up your iTunes, click Podcasts on the left, right-click MuggleCast, and hit Update Podcast, or just hit the Refresh button after clicking Podcasts on the left. And that way, you will get the latest episode when we post a news or tweet about it. Now, one of the oh, Andrew, one of the things we did want to announce last week, but Micah wasn't with us, um, is that Micah actually really liked how yeah. to succeed in business. Yeah, right? no, uh, I know you guys talked Micah about just it a little woke bit. Up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, sorry about that. He doesn't um, answer unless called upon. Yeah, no, no. Um, you guys did talk about it on the last show. I know Andrew said uh, that I was laughing at certain parts. Andrew, it's just because I've been in the business world longer. I got more of those jokes it's than you. I think that's what it was. <laughs> uh, no, but it, it was a great show. I thought Dan did a great job, you know, singing, dancing. Uh, you know, it was really uh, across the board. It, it was uh, it was a good time. So I'm sure, uh, you know, a lot of the cast that was here uh, for uh, all the press events the last few days went and got a chance to see him as well. So That's really um, cool. And they had nothing but good things to say. So... I recommend it. If you're in town for the exhibition, go see uh, how to succeed. Wow. And uh, back over to MuggleCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter by going to Twitter.com slash MuggleCast. Liking us on Facebook by going to Facebook.com slash MuggleCast. And also following our fan Tumblr, MuggleCast.tumblr.com. It's, it's really it's the best thing ever. We're throwing fans down the steps. It's it's amazing. It's, it's absolutely amazing. I don't... Okay. So they tumble. They tumble down the steps. Never mind. Oh, right. Our fan Gosh, tumbler our where fan, we push people. To, <laughs> I didn't get that. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of fans that would like to push us down the stairs, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's mutual. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Andrew Sims. I'm Eric Skull. I'm Mike Townville. And I'm Matt Britton. We'll see everyone next time for episode 226. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.